Welcome, everybody, into the Valley. I am Ethan Shutt, joined by Stephen Garner. We are here to talk all things Game 2 and get you ready for tonight's Game 3. Again, we are into the Valley, part of Helio Hoops and the Fans First Sports Network. And Stephen, we actually have a win to talk about. Weirdly enough, I feel like the loss had me more excited to talk just because I felt like there were more questions we needed to answer coming off of a win. It's more of, well, what were we right about? What were we wrong about? And what's to come in game three? Cause you know, Ty Lue's not a coach who's going to let game two just run itself back. How did you feel immediately coming off of the sun's one twenty three one Oh nine win in game two? I felt restored in terms of order because the manner in which they went about operating and how it looked and even past like how it looked, just how it felt like there was a different type of, um, there was a different type of like stranglehold that they had on the game, a different type of energy from, especially from the starting group. That was a contrast from what we saw um, for stretches in game one. So that's, that's my biggest takeaway. Um, And I feel like that was their biggest adjustment to make. Of course, there were uh, minute things to address, but, more so, more more so than anything else, it was just the requisite energy to bring to a playoff game to get a win. I'm gonna hit you with uh, some quick hitters to get us started, and a lot of these are, in my opinion, kind of just picking up where we left off a couple days ago. I want to hit you with some of the complaints, maybe that were made by either the fans or things called out by us after Game One, and I want to hear your thoughts on how how they kind of worked themselves out in Game Two. So I want to start off with a big one that a lot of people will talk about nonstop. The Josh Okogie, Tory Craig decision. Uh, I thought we, I really enjoyed our conversation about it last time because I think we talked a lot about the strengths and weaknesses with either decision. Uh, I think going into game two, we both thought we might see that switch happen and we didn't. Tory was still in that starting lineup. Uh, it is worth noting Akogi almost doubled his minutes in game two. But what was your what were your thoughts about the Akogi Craig minutes kind of with the starters, the closers, and how that worked out in game two? I think it was a there was a better blend in terms of Monty addressing that specific dynamic within the rotations. Um I'm not as and I think my stance has remained the same. I'm not completely against Tory starting. I just felt like to get the most out of Josh that he needed to be insulated by the, the firepower and just the versatility of the um the, the starters on offense particularly. Uh, but he he was he was be, he was able to be better blended with into the rotation um in game two. And I was happy to see that. However, the way that Tory Craig is looking with the starting lineup and the manner in which he's going about operating on both sides of the ball can't be ignored. So of course I might be pro a Koji to start, but if Tory's and the starting unit is popping at the way that it is now. Now we're in the situation where it's like if it's if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So the yeah. same way we felt about going into the playoffs, a Koji started because it was working. It's the same way I now feel about Tory Craig starting because the starters are plus thirty through two games. They were plus twenty in game two and plus ten in game one, which is the best lineup in the playoffs so far. Of course, it's only a two game sample size, but why would you touch that if it's operating mm-hmm. that well against the Clippers? You know, and that's. And that's including two duds of first quarters. And mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, if they hit the ground running in the first quarter, I think those numbers would continue to increase. Within kind of the broader picture, I wanted to bring up two things that we talked about. The first one being, I think the strongest argument that we both kind of agreed to with having Josh in that starting unit is the immediate insertion of energy from the tip. I thought that was a really good call out of yours that I was really focused on as this game started of just being like, do I think this is missing? And this is two games in a row that I, I did kind of think like, man, it would be great to come out with someone just hounding, whether that's hounding on Kawhi or whoever, uh, Tory defensively has been phenomenal, but he's, that's not, that's not his MO. Is that still kind of like what you think is your reason why you might have Josh in that starting five to begin with? Is that still maybe your strongest argument to make? 
Yes, and that's kind of where I start playing both sides of the fence, which I don't like doing, especially when you're uh, assessing the game. <laughs> you need to make decisions. I do think that the weakness of the team and one of the things that's a point of emphasis for me is if they can address the starts. So that first five minutes or that race to the first timeout of the game, forcing Ty Lue to take that first timeout rather than the Suns taking that first timeout, I think is an important thing. I do think that a Koji would definitely help with that. But I think this rendition of the Suns, uh, which is a uh, contrast to what we've grown to expect or grown to see, in previous in the previous rendition, they're a little bit slow getting to the party. They don't necessarily mm. come out guns blazing on both sides of the ball, but even more so, particularly on defense, the manner in which the Jay Crowder and Mikael Bridges starting rendition did. Uh, they're a unique contrast from that, and I think because of that, that's kind of why we see that becoming somewhat consistent for this team. However, after that first quarter. <laughs> it's like yeah. night and day. The yeah. team is completely different. But yeah, that uh that tone setting, I think a Koji would address that directly. Yeah, and, and my my argument for not as much in the starters, I, I really do like Josh in the starters, but my argument mm-hmm. for Tori in the closers, I feel like also kind of came to light. And we text I try not to text during games a lot of times one I know I know you are a writer yourself with the journalist side of things you got stuff going on but we were watching that fourth quarter Josh was out there with the starting group and I I think it was like 6 30 left if I remember right and I was like oh Monty Monty might be rolling with this like Mm -hmm. we might be seeing a new version of the closing five that is a lot more like what, what the fans are wanting to see he gets one open three and misses it. And I immediately think to myself, crap, that's my concern. The last five minutes of a close game, I, as a fan, want to have confidence in the guy in the corner shooting the three. And this wasn't a bad shooting performance for him. He was one of two. Mm-hmm. But I think there's just this mental aspect in this rhythm that just, I don't know, you don't want to play with fire. And if I'm Monty and I see that shot not go in, I immediately get transported back to Dallas and I say, oh, crap, what if he misses the next one? Right. And that just that can throw off the entire offensive rhythm and and what you're trying to accomplish in your half court sets. If the end result you want is a wide open corner three and you can get it, that's great. But if the person shooting isn't one that you think has confidence in themselves at that moment, it's not worth it. So he misses that corner three. Tori gets subbed in not long after. I mean, I think it was within like 45 seconds. And and you, I think you said it to me. It's like, it's just a feel thing. Like, whether that's from the coach or the player, like, you got to know what the feel is within that group of who needs to be out there for that role. And Tori is shooting the ball at an unsustainable level. His corner three-point shooting, which has been his strongest for the season, is just through the roof. And I think it's going to be hard for Monty to make a switch if Tori doesn't give him a reason to do it. Uh, I don't... I I think if Monty was going into, the, like, let's put Josh back in the starting lineup just to immediately go back to the starting five, like, I think that's getting in the weeds when it's not needed. So I, I'm expecting to see those two in their current rotations kind of be a run-it-back situation for game three. Uh, Kogi ended up playing, let me double check here, 15 minutes, which was over double, I think. Yeah, over double, technically. He played seven in game one. Do you think that 15-minute mark is around what we should expect, or do you think that that's going to sit somewhere in maybe that, I don't know, 15 to 20, 18 sweet spot going forward as maybe the starters have to play less minutes? given that a lot of them are old. <laughs> well, the the minutes the minutes total being logged by that starter group, that starting group is something we're going to address later for mm-hmm. sure. But I do think that again because of the space that Tory's in right now, um and how he's just fit so well with the starting group uh over the last two games, again, it's just hard to it's hard to touch that. So because of that, I think Josh is going to be stuck in this little um this little I guess, box minutes wise. 
in that like 15-ish, 15 to 20 minute uh minute range. Now, if Tory gets in foul trouble, because of course he's guarding Kawhi Leonard, it's not always one-on-one coverage, but because he's the primary uh responsibility, uh responsible for Kawhi defensively, that leaves a lot to variance in terms of uh what the whistle might be like. So there's a chance that Josh punches over 20 minutes in one of these games in Los Angeles. But if things go scripted the way that they went in the first two games, I don't see it. So I think that 15-minute-ish range is about where he'll be for this series. All right, so we talked about those two. We got that squared away. Let's talk about the rotations. There were some lineups we hated in game one. I don't think we saw Monty completely abandon the strategy, but we did see some tiny tweaks. Uh, The one that genuinely surprised me the most was I saw Damian Lee touch the basketball court. Did you know he was still allowed to do that? (laughs) I was Uh, not aware he was allowed to, but I I did see him and I scratched my head. (laughs) I, I immediately saw that and I was like, what is Monty trying to do this time? And I mean, it was a, it was a pretty short lease situation. It very much felt like a, if this clicks, great, we'll give it a run. If it does not, I'm not messing around with it. Uh, and he didn't mess around with it. We saw Damian Lee get minutes. We saw Ish get one minute. We saw TJ Warren get two minutes. Uh, it almost felt like a more of a necessity just to give the starters a breather. It was almost like the uh, little kid soccer water break for the starters. Like, hey, coming out for 60 seconds, drink whatever you got to drink, do some stretches. You're going back out in 60 seconds. It didn't ever feel like those guys were really being viewed as a, this can work. It was almost just necessity. What were your thoughts on the rotation in general? Uh, I think Kogi's minutes being really the only drastic change in terms of someone seeing the court more. We really just saw a lot of minutes taken away from other folks. But um, in terms of the rotation, I know Wainwright, Warren, and Lee touched the court, but in reality, it was an eight-man rotation. Uh, Busy, Kogi, Shamit, all right at that 15 mark, and that was really it. What what were your thoughts on the rotations? Were you happier with how Monty kind of played this one in game two? Yeah, I was definitely more happy with how he played it. We didn't see those aforementioned Booker plus reserve lineups. They were absolute duds, and that's an understatement. So um, naturally, not seeing that, automatically makes me happy i did question in the moment why um damian lee was in the game i feel like that was an indicator and that's not even like an indictment against damian it's just more so me trying to figure out and gauge where monty was with his feel for the rotation because i felt like that was missing in game one and paled in comparison to Ty Lue, which is a, a kind of a byproduct of why we got the result we got in game one mm-hmm. nonetheless i feel like um, he was searching at that moment in the game because the Suns hadn't had their true stamp on it. They had an okay start. It was better than the start in game one, but it wasn't where they wanted to be. So they were kind of behind the chains, if you want to use a, a football terminology um, to use to speak on it. And I felt like he was kind of searching in that moment with Damian Lee, like, okay, we need a little bit of shooting. We've been a little cold. Let's right. see if he can come out there and do something with his movement and replicate a little bit of what Landry Shamit brings when he's playing with some of those players that he was in the lineup with. And obviously, like you said, it didn't work, so they got him out of there. And uh, that was that was very short-lived, as well as uh, T.J. Warren's stint on the, on the floor as well. And I feel like once he consolidated the rotation, it led to a lot of the minutes coming from the starters, of course. Uh, particularly the big four. But, you know, it's one of those things you got to kind of live with because it wasn't necessarily a must win because it's way too early in the series, but it was a gotta have a game. Yeah. And I felt like that was the energy that he came with uh, after the first quarter, after the experimental phase, and they got the results that they expected after quarter two because of it. Yeah, Dam- Damian Lee, for me, how I interpreted that was Monty wants to put out Terrence Ross but he doesn't mm-hmm. trust on defense. So no, he sure said, you. we'll go with Damian Lee. We'll see what happens. I know if nothing else, he's not going to get cooked. And so that's, that was the thought. Like Terrence offensively, I would have preferred to see in there. I I don't feel good about him out there in the playoffs when it comes to not just good you you use the you use the phrase thought bubbles you see people thinking <laughs> Terrence Ross is a walking thought bubble on defense he is still figuring it out 
Which makes sense. Like he he has been in a system in a place for such a long time and is now having to be in a very different and unique system. It makes sense. Like no no shade to him, but it just is the safer pick to throw out Damian Lee. Uh I thought looking at the reserves, there's not much to talk about. I feel like we can be pretty quick with this. Uh looking at Josh, looking at Landry, looking at Busy. What were your thoughts from the three reserves that did get the minutes that did give our starters uh, about 45 combined minutes of breathers? Uh, any of those three stand out to you? Things you like, things you didn't like? Uh, one thing that stood out to me was that if Josh is going to be playing a relevant amount of minutes, and of course the team needs his defensive prowess, especially when Tory Craig is off the floor, he has to defend without fouling. Like, yep. of course, naturally, he's a physical player. I liken him a lot to Jay Crowder, just more athletic and more perimeter-oriented and more comfortable in that scenario as well. Um, and there's a certain level of physicality that makes his impact what it is and what it can be when it's optimized. But he has to really zoom in and pay attention to how the game is being called while Tori is in. Because when he comes in, if he has a great gauge and feel for how the game is getting called, then he has an idea of what he can get away get away with and what he can't. And I understand that, you know, for him to be as effective as he desires to be, there has to be that teetering on the borderline of over-physicality. Um, Monty loves to call it being physical to the legal limit. That legal limit, it, there's a high variance from game to game. So. Yeah. Giving him that um, that mulligan, being able to see how it's being called before he gets in, rather than finding out while he's already in the fire, is something that he has to use as an advantage. So I do think he will figure it out because he's a disciplined player. He's not just out there running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Um, and we've we've seen him show that discernment uh, after picking up early fouls against players like Giannis or against a player like Larry Markinen. Um, that operates similarly to Kawhi Leonard. So we just have to see him put it forth. And now he kind of has a feel for where he might be within the rotation. And there's not really any question about uh, where he might be coming in minutes-wise. I think that allows him to kind of focus in more and be a little bit more um, – it's being a little bit more um, – we could just say uh, disciplined, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to take a quick pause to say that somewhere – a Laurie Marketing fan just heard you group him in with Giannis and Kawhi Leonard, and I don't think they're even going to care about context. If I were them, I would be thrilled. So good for him. I don't know if you'll ever hear those three names together. Uh, but yeah, I, that was kind of my my two takeaways from Josh was offensively, I want to see him attack the rim more. Mm-hmm. I think if the shot's not falling or if the defense just not giving him the shot, because I think that's important too, if a defense isn't going to completely shy away from him, we don't want him shooting those shots. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Attack the closeout more, penetrate to create space for others, become more useful on offense other than just being a really good screener. What, mm-hmm. what you got there? And I think the other thing is his cutting. Like there was one play where we had a, a Kevin Durant post up on the left side of the floor. And they put two to the ball, of course, and that got the defense rotating. And Okoji was in the corner opposite of Kevin Durant. And his cut led to a wide-open closeout attack for, um, for I think it was Devin Booker, where Russell Westbrook had to respect the cut because of them zoning up on the second side, on the weak side defensively. Josh's cut was on time. It was such, such a well-timed cut, and it just sucked in the entire weak side. And that naturally allowed for the, the Suns to re-space on the second side. It, it uh, pinged around from Chris Paul to Devin Booker, and he was able to drive the closeout. But if not for that cut, like, that's the little things that Josh yep. brings, especially in the context of the Suns getting Durant more involved. When he has those touches, Josh is great at scripted cuts, and he's great at making those burn cuts that burn the defense. And that was just one example of just that. Yeah, it's it's how to create space for others by what I can't Correct. control. Um, Correct. Because again, there's screen assists and then there's cut assists. Cut assists aren't um, tallied officially, but that's definitely something that obviously Mikael Bridges excels at. And that's yeah. something that Okoji does as well. Yeah. No, that's it's just those it's those little things that can easily be missed. But that is intelligent offense and its effort. And again, it, it just makes sense. Like you're not he's not going to have the gravity of the other four guys out there. 
Correct. And so the only way to force that gravity is by attacking a part of the court that is so weak that someone has to defend. And mm-hmm. and you're spot on with those. Uh, Landry, poor guy still hasn't figured out the shot. I unfortunately, the way he's being used, he's not going to get open shots. I, then I think sometimes he needs a couple of those to get in rhythm. It seems just going back to games where he's really excelled. There's a couple of those open ones where he can kind of get under it and then figure it out. At least one of his first one, I think was kind of one of his moving off balances. It didn't mm-hmm. go in late in the game, got an open one that I think was later in the shot clock rattled in and out. It is what it is. I think defensively the value is still there. To the point where if Josh picks up early fouls like he did, it's great knowing that you can have someone with the intensity that Landry brings. And I thought Landry and Josh had some good minutes together defensively, Mm -hmm. having two guys out there to just hound the ball, give the other three guys a bit of a break. I mean, lots of deflected and tipped passes in that game, lots of passing lanes being cut off well above where an offense is typically getting initiated because those two just have motors and they they used them they used them well together and so again not sexy box scores for either of them but both i thought brought value that makes sense for why they're really the two getting picked because i don't think no offense to jock i'm i'm afraid that busy isn't getting picked over jock i'm afraid it's almost a necessity like when you're taking out DeAndre Ayton, there's one thing that is really being lost in in my mind from my perspective, and that's the rim protection. That's the one thing you just can't afford to have leave the court. And right now, Busy is just a better rim protector than Jock. So and I think you, know you sacrifice the offense and say, at least when DA's out there, we'll protect the rim. I think that's a great point especially in kind of comparing apples and oranges, because I don't think either is a bad decision, but I do think busy might be slightly in the moment, at least where the series is might be slightly better of an option. Um, I think the rim protection point is, is a good point. I do think it's less of a matter when Kevin Durant is on the floor because of the secondary rim protection that he brings, which is why I felt like Jock was the better option coming into this series because his rim protection that lacks can be insulated by Durant's. Um, especially with his defensive activity, which the Suns are just unbelievable when he's there on defense. But I do think we're busy outside of the rim protection. The other thing is that Monty trusts him off of switches. Yeah, and I was going to say, his, the, perimeter, his perimeter defense, when he gets switched, he doesn't look like someone that's going to get cooked. He, he's correct. done a really good job moving his feet and not fouling. Correct. Which, correct. I mean, if DA's going to pick up five, you cannot afford for that backup to get in trouble themselves, JaVale McGee style. Exactly. Busy is very good defending in space. Um, He's good also being active with his hands. So it's one thing to just be there and being able to contain the ball defensively. Can you be active, though? Can you disrupt disrupt the timing of a dribbler? Like, I think he got to stop against Norman Powell, Eric Gordon, and Kawhi Leonard in isolation in game two. I can't tell you that I would trust that Jock Landale will be able to do that. And that's no knock on Jock, but he just doesn't have the chops to defend in space and the Clippers like to run a lot of isolation whether that be direct isolation or when a play breaks down and they find a mismatch to attack that's like the premise of their offense so having a person that's not going to be a liability defending in space no different than it would be if it was a perimeter player is an asset to have in your front court as well and I think they the Suns actually went to more switching in the second half yes. um, when Busy was on the floor they started hey. switching one through five and yep. naturally that brought these contexts of defense to, to the fold. That was that was what I had in my note when I was kind of writing. It, I think it was the third quarter where it kind of clicked, where I was like, all right, Busy's getting these minutes. How's this going to go? And there were, within him going in, I think two possessions out of like the first three run by the Clippers, where they had switched Busy and he was guarding at the three-point line in an ISO set. And I said, all right, this is either going to quickly need to be fixed or we'll see what happens. Uh, and we had already seen a couple iterations of KD at the five type small ball where I was like, is that what Monty goes to if DA can't get the foul troubles taken care of? If Busy gets burned, do we see Jock? And I thought Busy did a really good job. Um, 
He'll still miss two shots right under the rim every game that frustrate you, but then he'll get the rebound every time. So on offense, you you kind of live with it. I think he knows where to be, uh, sets good screens. You just can't expect too much on the scoring side of things or even maybe the facilitating side. But defensively, that's where you can't afford to take a massive step back when DA's off the court. So I think it makes sense. I do think Jock offensively would be a reasonable step up. But come playoff time, and it's some of the complaints we heard in the first game with with KD not touching the ball in certain times, you don't want Jock to have the ball for too much time in a playoff game. So if you know it's not really a great option to begin with, I think Monty's decision makes total sense uh, as much as I like Jock, and I think he brings a lot to the table. So we've talked now about the reserves, the, the limited minutes there. We've talked about the Tory versus Josh back and forth. Let's look at the big four. Uh, and and I one more s- thing oh, on yeah, the reserves. One more thing on the reserves, just a quick blurb. Um, Cameron Payne's presence is certainly missed. Like this yes, team, this team was goodness. good in game two, but campaign and his impact, whether it's in addition to what Landry Shaman brings or if it's in place of Landry Shaman in the rotation, it's gonna be it's gonna be a great infusion of activity and just level of skill and pace uh, for this team in the minutes that Chris Paul is off the floor. So uh, that's the dynamic. Clippers to watch for are gonna forward. hate Cameron Payne, and I mean they already do. <laughs> after after the last series where he was starting for Chris Paul the first he, two games because of the COVID, the COVID situation. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he is going to make their defenders work mm-hmm. in a completely mm-hmm. different way than they're having to work right now. Yeah, the Clippers do not like to run. Like the teams that hurt them the most this season are teams like the Memphis Grizzlies and teams like the Sacramento Kings that pace, 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 pace. Um, one thing that Cameron Payne does, whether his numbers look good or not, is bring a certain level of pace that's different from – it's a contrast from what Chris Paul brings, which is what you want between your starting point guard and your backup point guard. So that dynamic being infused into the fold whenever it does come this series is going to be a big-time addition for this team that's already clicking. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, let's talk a little DeAndre Ayton real quick. Let's get it. My one, my one ask for that guy going into game two was, I need you to be the best field goal percentage shooter on the court. He did that for the Suns. I'm happy about it. Overall, I'm still. He didn't. He didn't make me forget game one. In a sense. What were kind of your notes about Aiton's performance? I saw a pretty mixed bag on Twitter and even from some of the writing. Uh, I saw some people kind of look at the box score and say 14 and 13, 7 of 10. That's the DeAndre Aiton we need. I saw other people still focused more on what had been lacking on the defensive side. Where are you kind of falling on this fence? Uh, Looking for more improvement, content with game two. What are your thoughts there? So DA was plus 15 and Zoo was minus 14. Of course, the numbers, especially the box score numbers, don't always tell the story, but it certainly felt like it because Aiden's impact, particularly in the second half, was mm-hmm. different. It was different. And I mean, even if we want to look at the look at the second quarter where uh he was just getting the job done. He was uh he had 10 points and he was five for six. He was knocking down those shots in the pocket, that little short mid-range area off the of pick and roll. Uh, he was knocking it down with great consistency. The way it was hitting the rim, it was hitting it with a certain type of confidence where he knew what he was doing. He was in rhythm. And he really helped to keep this team afloat when the Clippers were starting was to create yeah. some scoreboard separation um, outside of Kevin Durant, who had 10 points and was 4 for 5 in the second quarter as well. Uh, so Aiden, I mean, in the first half, outside of the scoring that he gave, I didn't like his defense one bit. Like, of course, the, the Suns didn't have the best defense um, on the perimeter in the first half either. They gave up a handful of straight line drives, but that's twofold because straight line drive, it comes from the person on ball not containing in the manner in which they need to. And it also comes from Aiden not being on high alert at the rim. And it's like, if you're not getting either one of those two things, that is nasty, especially on a playoff stage. And that's also a way for you to lose a game because you're giving the Mm -hmm. team confidence that you're not even there. So the contrast we saw from Aiden in the second half defensively and the thing that really stood out to me and where my light bulb moment happened and I was just elated, it was a win within the win, was when I saw him getting up to the level of the screen. So Kawhi Leonard has been burning the Suns through the first the first game and then the half of the second game. 
coming off of screens and seeing DeAndre Aiden in the drop, if whoever is containing the ball gets hung up on that screen from Zoo or Mason Plumlee or whoever, sometimes it's even Eric Gordon, um, that's automatically a pull-up for Kawhi. And he's one of the best pull-up shooters in the game. He's one of the best scorers in the game. DeAndre Aiden in the second half got closer to the level of the screen, and then he started getting all the way up to touch, and then sometimes even putting out a hedge or um, like a like a soft double team while the the um, the person containing the ball was rotating over the screen, and that's the type of activity that I spoke about with Kevin Durant in the mix that Aiden needed to get to, and that's not necessarily an indictment to him. It's kind of twofold between him and Monty because Aiden needs to be playing more dictative style of defense that's the way you send a team like the Clippers off script especially without Paul George because guess what if you terminate Kawhi Leonard's dribble and somebody else has to create late in the shot clock I will live with the chances on that 10 times out of 10 every single time so having DeAndre Ayton switching from playing a reactive passive type of defense and drop which he of course is his um, staple defensively to putting pressure on teams whether that be him flat hedging actually trapping or just being up to touch at the level of the screen and then getting back into the drop. There's a different type of feel that it has versus him sitting at the free throw line like Zubac when he's a much more capable defender out in space and just a general better player than a player like Zubac is. So seeing that twist and dynamic really, really brought me a lot of solace, and I'm hoping that they keep that blended into their defensive scheme moving forward, particularly on Kawhi. I I can't remember what happened first, but there was part of me that just felt like Monty was watching what Aiton was doing well defensively in that second half that led to the instruction for Biz of being like, hey, play up, switch everything, continue to put that pressure on. Don't give them that half of a half of a second to make either that cut, that read, that whatever. And then with DA, it's like, don't don't wait for them. Like, bring it to them, which I think is just on the mentality side so needed against a team like the Clippers who want to be the aggressor. Like they want to be the one bringing it to you in all aspects of the game. And I, I really liked that as well. I'm hoping, I don't know. I am hoping the first half issues in terms of just general rim protection and reading and being aware. I hope that continues to improve. Uh, maybe that could be just, He's not used to also having a help side guy down there who can rim protect. And so he's thinking something's covered that's not covered. I don't know. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and just say there's adjustments that are being made everywhere on the court, but I'm hoping that improves. Uh, I will say I'll continue to find it funny listening to Chuck at halftime talk about DeAndre Ayton rebounding because he is convinced that Ayton should be getting 25 rebounds a game. I don't think it's quite that high but I sure would like to see some of it increase, not in terms of just, he's really good at getting the bunny rebounds. You know what I mean? Like he gets a lot where it's kind of just him. I would lose my mind if I saw him start getting the, uh, as Carmelo Anthony once referred to himself many, Mm -hmm. many times, the F out of here rebounds Mm -hmm. that he'd love to scream to everyone. Russell Westbrook gets those rebounds. I I was going to say, we're seeing him on the other side of the court. Mm-hmm. I would love that day to come where DeAndre Ayton just has like this personal vendetta against anyone trying to get the ball away from him. We'll see if that comes in time. The man secured his bag. We'll see how much change is coming there. Uh, mm-hmm. But looking at the, the real big three within our, our core four here, uh, I'm going to give you my quick thoughts and I, and I'll let you take it wherever I thought Devin Booker played a great game. I yes. would describe it as a great game. I would describe Chris Paul as playing the perfect Chris Paul game in terms of what he did is exactly what I think we need from him. And I thought Kevin Durant played a good game. And I think, and this is, I know the standard might not be fair. I don't think Kevin Durant has played a great game yet this series. Looking at his numbers versus his normal shooting percentages, looking at what he's getting on offense in the, from the shooting side of things, there's another step up from what we've seen. We've not seen it from anyone nev- next to Devin Booker before, so even what we're seeing is phenomenal as Suns fans. But you don't have to go back in time that far to see what Kevin, Cur- Kevin Durant can do at the next level of efficiency offensively 
I am hoping we see that in game three or four. I'm hoping we see one of those, oops, Kevin Durant accidentally scored 37 on 60% shooting, because that's possible. I mean, the dude goes 0 for 4 from 3, which that's not going to happen often. Even two of those, you're now hitting close to 30 points. He ended up at 25, shooting the ball, just really streaky, I guess. He would get a rhythm. You would see it kind of click in his mind. I'm going to I'm going to continue going to this until I can't. But then he'd kind of have his short little cold spells. So I thought Booker played everything you would want from him and more. I thought Chris Paul, we both talked about this. People were crapping on Chris after game 1. Chris in game 2 found the same looks he was getting in game 1, he just hit him. Like that's that's exactly what you expect. That's why you want the ball in his hand. Uh and then KD, a good game. I still think we can see better. What were what were your big takeaways from those three after game two where all three of them really put it together? Well, this is the first game where I can comfortably say that we saw a very good game from um, all three of them yep. in unison. As in, okay, Devin Booker just came down court and hit a mid-range shot. All right, the Kevin Durant just came down on the next possession and he hit a shot off a of mid-range in isolation. Oh, man, Chris Paul just came off a pick this third possession and he just got to the midi and he knocked down uh, one of those layups from the mid-range that he knocks down all the time. Like, this is one of those games where their offensive process was clicking in unison between all three. And, I mean, if we add Aiden to the mix, this is the first time we've seen all four of those guys all clicking um, in the same game, in the same stretches of games as well. Uh, it was it was very fun to see. And it was – that dynamic is 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 dominant. It's dominant. Um, looking at the big three specifically, though, um, Devin Booker went 10 for 15 from two. Kevin Durant went 10 for 15 from two. And Chris Paul went eight for 13 from two. That exploitation of drop coverage, which dictated and flipped the entire script of the game for the Clippers on his head, that's the formula for this team. That's the space that these three in unison need to operate in. They forced Zubash to start stepping up closer to the level of the screen, which is not his comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And it got to the extent that where Early in the fourth quarter, um, Tyron Lue had to go off script with his rotations, take Zoo off the floor, and they went with small ball. And it wasn't their best small ball lineup that they even went with because uh, Robert Covington is typically their best small ball center. He couldn't even play because he hadn't played in all of game one, and he didn't touch the court in game two either. Uh, so I ended up putting Kawhi Leonard at the five, and they went with the small ball variant with, with Kawhi there. And even at that point, the damage was done. And there was there was no way to kind of suppress the bleeding that was going on, um, but that's the that's the type of dictating style of play that this specific team, particularly the big three, needs. And to see them operate in that way on offense, dude, it was it was incredible. Like there was a moment where, of course, I'm always watching it from like an analyst standpoint. But there was a point in the game where I just had to become a fan, and I feel like that's part of it when the team is doing just doing what they're supposed to do. And doing what you you feel like is a space that they can operate in consistently, that's what we saw <laughs> from those three. Yeah, uh, and it was, it was fun, man. It was fun. Um, the Suns got outscored from non twos, so free throws and three pointers by eighteen points in this game, mm -hmm. and won by fourteen. Mm -hmm. Like they were destroying them from the mid range. Some good stuff at the rim. But that was when you construct this team and you know where defenses are weak in the playoffs and say, this is where this team should shine. And they finally did it. And that felt really, really good. Uh, I, I was really happy to see it clicking. I, I genuinely, sons aside, love Chris Paul. I love watching him operate. I love watching this guy who physically is not going to dominate you with strength or even speed just say i know how to set you up four steps ahead to completely exploit you and get the shot i wanted from the beginning i love watching him work like he is he's a guy he's a guy in a regular person's body with a a chess master's mindset and <laughs> he's just wicked man he's he, wicked he's <laughs> phenomenal i think book Play showed God. why he continues to be the heart of this team i think even with Durant coming into the picture, Phoenix is still Devin Booker City. 
Suns are still led by that guy, and I think that was on full display in game two. Every big run, every momentum swing, Booker was phenomenal. And mm-hmm. offensively, he did it without taking a massive step back on defense from game one, which I was intrigued to see too. This was this is two-way star player performance through two games. Yes, and that's why he's the best. I don't care who you want to bring up. You want to talk numbers. You want to watch film, which is what's most important. <laughs> Add that context to it. Devin Booker is the bona fide best shooting guard in the NBA, and it's not because he's just this crazy scorer, which he is, but he also does a lot more. He can initiate offense. He can play in pick and roll, play in isolation, play out of the post. He can cut. He can screen. And on defense, he can play off ball and be a, a a free safety roaming in passing lanes. He's disciplined. He doesn't foul often. He's willing to take a charge. He can step up and give rim protection and rotation on the weak side from defense. Um, he can contain the ball and pick and roll and navigate screens. He can hold his own in isolation. Like what? What are we like? What? What are we talking Nothing. about? Where is the weakness within this guy's game? Like seriously, yeah. and we saw him do all of that. We saw him initiating offense. Chris Paul talked about a point of emphasis for the team going into game two, playing with more pace, getting into their half court sets. And by nature of that, he likes to walk the ball up the floor, which some people don't like, some people do like. I feel like he does it when it's appropriate. It's not as bad as people expect it or say it is. Nonetheless, they talked about picking up the pace, getting into their sets. So he would kick it to Devin Booker often, especially in the second half, where we saw uh, Devin Booker going crazy in the third quarter where he scored 18 points on seven for eight from the field. It was a lot of him initiating offense, just getting them into their sets quicker because he's not being pressed um, three-fourths of the court the way Chris Paul is. And that just naturally allows for them to have more shot clocks to play with, whether that's getting into their sets. And if the initial thing doesn't work, they can get into a secondary action, whether that be isolation, pick and roll, or um, something else. And Devin Booker was just unbelievable, man. His processing speed as a playmaker is it's there. Like, it's there. It is certainly there. And then the scoring, the scoring is what it is. And then the defense, man, he got switched onto Kawhi Leonard how many times? Just within the rotations of the of the defense for the Suns and held his own and then some playing with activity, being disciplined. Dude is unbelievable, man. He's unreal. Well, let's look to tonight's game. Uh, I'm guessing folks that are still listening or the same people that'll be watching want to apologize to the majority of the world with the 1030 Eastern time tip off. Hmm. That sucks. And in case that wasn't bad enough, let's throw the game on NBA TV. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know who controls it. I guess it's a league. I don't know what they were thinking, but what a stupid decision to have this on NBA TV. We'll see what happens. But tonight, a late one, we've got a big game three. I think kind of to your point, game two wasn't a must win, but you need it. I think game three. A little bit more of a coin flip. I think in the Suns' mind, they would never admit this. If you take one on the road here and go back to Phoenix 2-2, I think you feel great. I think if you can take them both in L.A., obviously, you're feeling phenomenal. Looking into Game 3 based on the changes we saw in Game 2 and some of the stuff you liked, you didn't like, what's something that our listeners can look for as they watch Game 3 to maybe enjoy it more, be more clued into something, uh, or maybe just what are you looking for in game three that you can talk about? So there's a couple of things, the first of which being the defending of Kawhi Leonard. We haven't talked about that much yet. Um, I talked about it in my preview, talked about it on the preview pod, talked about it on Steven's study. How the Suns go about defending Kawhi Leonard is going to be an important dynamic to watch because it's not going to be the same from game to game, maybe even from quarter to quarter. The blend that they had of coverages on Kawhi Leonard was absolutely phenomenal. We talked about Aiden being up at the level of the screen in game two. We talked about just the different type of bodies that went against Kawhi Leonard being attached to him, regardless of what the context was for him on offense. Um, They have to continue to put forth that type of feel on the defensive side, applying different coverages, giving them different looks, giving them different um, personnel groupings to think about. That's going to be important to see um, as we as we trek forward. Another thing is Kevin Durant initiating offense, especially in pick and roll. He has been he's been the best pick and roll um, initiator in the NBA for these playoffs. 
like literally the best. He is scoring 10 and a half points in that specific scenario per game. It's only through two games, so the sample size is small. Uh, but he's hitting those at 1.6 uh points per possession, which is the best. And he's scoring at like he's scoring like 76% of the time in that scenario, getting to his left hand, getting into that mid-range pull-up. That is something that's gonna continue to be an advantage setter for this team. And then the other big thing, I think if I'm only going with three things, is the usage of Durant. So not just initiating offense, but his mid-post touches and the elbow touches. It's something that I also harped on in the pregame pods and things like that. It's an advantage setter. It's always going to get the Clippers in rotation. So when the Suns are struggling to get them rotated out of pick and roll or any other actions they run, dump the ball over the old reliable and just play off of the advantage that your best player <laughs> presents. That's the one thing that you have that's a separator because most teams don't have two or three of those guys. You have arguably the best at creating that advantage. So using that for what it is, is going to be important, especially on the road and keeping him involved in offense. Yeah. My big thing is just the first quarter. That yes. It's two straight games now where the Suns didn't do themselves any favors and they had holes to dig themselves out of. Obviously a pretty different size hole in game two from game one. But when I'm kind of looking down the road, if the Suns could just have one of those games where they come out hot, I mean, honestly, kind of like the reverse of game one, if they can be the ones coming out hot, clicking early, get themselves a lead that can give them the ability to give guys some rest. I don't want all four of those dudes playing 42-plus minutes every night. Not sustainable. It's not. And the way you fix that is by giving yourself a big enough cushion to give them rest, or the very bad alternative, get blown out and give them rest. I don't see us getting blown out by anybody. So how do we find ways to give their legs a break? It's finishing the series early and getting ahead to where you can afford to have them off the court. Making some little rotation tweaks that, yes, give you a little bit less of a balanced look, but something you can live with where you can allow a 20-point lead to creep down to 15. I mean, that could be three to four minutes. And when you're looking at a game right now where they're, I mean, they're, that's just not sustainable. And I know there are plenty of loud people on the internet. Yeah, well, they didn't play that much during the season. I don't care. Chris Paul's old. He's basketball old. Kevin Durant's not exactly basketball young either. People kind of forget that he's, He's been around. That guy played in Seattle. Like, we need to do whatever is possible to try to give their legs the ability to continue on without having a Chris Paul-sized drop-off in Dallas. If you want to say it was COVID, that's fine. Even if it wasn't, I still think his legs were probably getting a little tired. So I want to see, can we come out with the first big punch in Game 3? I think I think you you nailed it. Win that first turnover or that first timeout battle. Mm-hmm. Put the Clippers on their heels. I I know for a fact the Clippers have a lot more pressure to win Game Three than the Suns do. The Clippers do not want to lose at home and go down two to one, be on the bad side of a two game winning streak for the Suns with a one game at home to prevent them from going down three one. They've got more pressure right now. The Suns can drop Game Three and still say we just got to steal one. Put them on their heels early and keep them there. I think Ty Lue, because he's a good coach, is pretty, you know, he he tries to be pretty proactive, but put him in a spot where he has to be reactionary, like the Kawhi at the small ball five. Put him in the spots where his guys don't feel on on script, going back to uh, some football stuff, like make them adapt because I don't think they have the talent top to bottom to do it. They have lots of good depth players who know how to fit a role. I don't think they have guys at the level to adapt and deliver when going against a Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, etc. So that's what I'm looking for. Uh I, I'm I don't know, I'm still not feeling confident. I'll put it that way. I didn't after game 1, I think I've officially lost the ability to feel like confident going into a game just because we've seen now with concrete evidence that things do happen and things can happen and losses can happen. 
but going in going into tonight's game, how are you feeling? You think the Suns go up two one, or you think this is a take a bit of a breather and try to tie it up in game four? I think the Suns are going up two one, and I, so I feel like they've they've saw their offensive process play out, and they've seen what hits. And they figured out how to go about navigating to those spots to hit those weak spots in the Clippers defense. And I think if they get that on display. Yes. And speaking specifically to Booker, his drives are, they are hitting a different type of note right now. And they were hitting a different type of note before they rested the last two games. And I was hoping that it translated, especially against a team like the Clippers who have a handful of good defenders. They are clicking and then some, and I think that's going to be at the premise of everything is just continuing to have that offensive process we saw in the second half translate over into the rest of the game. Getting those KD mid-post touches, mixing in some Aiden and Chris Paul pick and roll, getting Devin Booker on the move and allowing for him to drive, and just keeping those things in a blend. And getting to the um, the centers for the Clippers as well, getting to Mason Plumley and Zubach. Hitting those notes offensively is going to allow for them to dictate and like you you said it, the Clippers don't have anybody outside of Kawhi Leonard that can send another team off script. The Clip, the Suns have three. Yeah, the math is in their favor if they teeter it and they tinker it and they um, nurture it the right way. So there's going to be an onus on Monty Williams to keep this team where they need to be, dictating, and that's also going to be on the players to have that requisite energy as well. Yep. Well, like we said uh, tonight, game three, ten thirty Eastern. Uh, we will be watching. We will be up late. We will get our thoughts together and come back to talk game three once it's wrapped up. If you are listening, just another reminder, feel free to follow and subscribe on the channel. Follow on Twitter at the Valley PHX. You're going to see Steven stuff get shared a bunch. Steven does phenomenal in-depth breakdowns, film studies, just good commentary on the game uh, that we try to share from our account as well. Um, you can follow me. It's not in depth. It is very much angry fan yells into the sky sometimes, <laughs> but sometimes it's, it's worth listening to who knows. Uh, but thank you again for listening. We are excited to continue covering the playoffs for Steven. I am Ethan. This is into the Valley, the Phoenix Suns podcast. We are. Peace.